the Silas community, we're all agreeing the importance of SAMES in the process of extraction of energy. Welcome back, everyone, to the Dairy Science Digest. This is the podcast designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to the ears of dairy producers. I'm Reagan Bluell from the University of Missouri Dairy Team, and today we're meeting with Jose Varela, a corn breeder from the Department of Agronomy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He and his team were interested in understanding how plant variety, and specifically those traits that are expressed at the kernel level, would impact overall starch availability for your herd. So we all know to make milk, we need energy, we need protein, and for decades, corn silage has been the go-to homegrown forage that will help us pack a punch of energy to support your herd. So we need to understand, is it the traits? Is it the fermentation that's happening in the pit or the combination of this interaction between all of those to create the perfect corn silage? To best understand these interactions and the breeding results, of this study and to answer these questions that were recently released in the Journal of Dairy Science in an article titled, The Effect of Endosperm Type Storage Length of Whole Plant Corn Silage on Nitrogen Fraction, Fermentation Profiles, Zine Profile, and Starch Digestibility. This entire paper is freely accessible at a clickable link at the bottom of the show discussion. It'll take you to the Journal of Dairy Science, the recently released articles in press from August 22nd. Dr. Varela, welcome to the Dairy Science Digest. And before we really get going, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your team? Yeah. First of all, thank you so much, Regan, for this invitation. I graduate with a PhD in plant breeding and plant genetics from the University of Wisconsin-Madison under the mentorship of Dr. Natalia De Leon on 2022. And I'm currently working as a postdoctoral fellow with her at the same lab. Part of my work during that PhD was related to corn breeding and genetics. Specifically, we were targeting kernel traits associated to improvement in the efficiency of energy extraction from ruminants, cows from the plant. So we did quite a bit of extensive work in terms of new methods to quickly and easily assess properties of the kernel then we did mm-hmm. genetic mapping to find regions of the genome associated with properties of the kernel that will end up improving the efficiency of energy extraction. And we did also an applied experiment, which is specifically this one, where we were testing using some basic genetic tricks to see if we can compare in a fair way the effect of the endosperm into in vitro starch digestibility. And that's so important because that starch from the corn silage is really what helps fuel some of the lactation and and give her a drive to consume and such. Would it be safe to say that that you're a postdoc corn breeder that wakes up every day passionate about creating this ideal variety of corn for dairy producers? In certain way, I am. Yeah, no. At the end, I was. I am a, a, a practical person. I try to focus my research into practical and applied stuff that will end up be translated to the farmer. Currently, in my postdoc projects, I am a little bit detached. I'm working a more indirect way. We're working with drone imaging, mm-hmm. but we're trying to assess features that could help farmers. So I am a little, I am like one mile away of the kernel, but we're trying to, to connect those worlds. Very cool. Very cool. Well, that's awesome. Let's, let's dive right into this project. So we all know the importance of kernel processing. That's been well understood for uh, decades. And, and that's by breaking that kernel up, you're unlocking the starch for easy access to the rumen. However, 
your research is looking a little bit further to really understand that matrix that's around the starch that's inside the kernel. And I was really learning quite a lot from your article's introduction about prolamins. Could you just do a dive into some of the terminology that you look at or understand about the anatomy of a corn kernel like prolamin and, and zines and all these different matrix around the, the starch in our corn plant. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about uh, corn as a feed for animals, well, the first thing that comes to my head, it's a very efficient uh, starch production machine. It's very unique compared to other crops. If you think you put one single kernel that will become a plant and in a decent hybrid, you can get anything between 600, 700 kernels from one. And starch is the main feature that the farmer or the grower give to, to the animal. Most of the starch comes from the kernel. The, the stover, the green part of the plant, it's more rich in uh, fiber, lignin, cellulose. So focusing on that part in the biochemistry and in the, let's say, biophysics of the kernel, it's an important thing because corn has been selected in the last 100 years uh, to reach a very high concentration of starch. Mm -hmm. Where does that starch live? That starch lives in the endosperm. And this is where I will jump in a little bit in the corn, in the kernel structure. So there are three main structures that you can decompose a kernel. The pericarp, which is the outer layer that protects the kernel. The endosperm, which are the energy reservoir for the embryo. And the embryo, which is the little plant. Most of the kernel, either by weight or by volume, in a normal commercial hybrid, it's the endosperm. And the endosperm is typically around 75% of starch, which is a lot. Then the rest, mm -hmm. there is like something like 10 to 12% of protein, a little bit of fat, minerals, and so on. So if we know that we are reaching a high amount of starch, I don't see a ton of potential to grow breeding into more starch mm -hmm. because there is a, a biological limit, right? right? If you keep going beyond with starch, you will be penalized, whatever, the, the biological minimum of protein. So that's when the next steps come. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have a ton of starch, which is the main energy uh, delivered to the cow. Can we make having a ton of starch, does that imply that the cow will use it in 100% efficiency? No. What are the parameters that affect that? One of that was called vitreousness, which is a, a terminology coined by, I would believe, uh, breeders. It's how this starch is packed within the endosperm. Starch, which is a polysaccharide, is the way that plants pack sugar. It's not freely available in the endosperm. It's clustered within what's called storage proteins. And the main type of storage proteins are what I call prolamines. So let's kind of dive into this a little bit more. Listeners, if, if this is the first time you've heard the word vitreousness, uh, don't, don't feel bad. Me too, right? I, I had to Google it to figure out what it was. But really, it's referring to how those starch granules can kind of be tightly packed and encapsulated by these proteins that he's talking about. And, and really, what plant breeders are trying to do is identify a phenotypic change, uh, genetic breeding change that they can do in order to make that starch matrix more available to the rumen. 
I think it's important I, how your land-grant universities are passionate about researching all of these different things so that we can know and chart the path of, of forward progress. Because yeah. unless you do projects like this that, that really help define some of these things, then you can't have those clear delineating projects. This is more foundational. Yeah, there's been... For different direct or indirect reasons, this has been breeding towards more mm -hmm. starch, but we're reaching the limit. So now we're thinking in the next round, okay, we have enough starch. We cannot go beyond. How can we make that starch more available? So they keep looking at, at the future. You bet. Absolutely. And trying to stay one step ahead. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what your land-grant university does to ensure the latest, greatest genetics in and available to our, our herds. It's important to actually quantify the real impact of improving the kernel endosperm because although most of the time it brings better digestibility, it comes with other off-agronomics, mm. non-desire, right? It, it comes with better performance for digestibility. But if you think soft kernels sometimes have poor germination, they are more susceptible to fungal attacks, to birds attacks. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think it's important to say, okay, yes, there is a gain. But boy, you better assure that the gain is it's it's significant because you don't want to penalize the other agronomics right. just because of a, a marginal gain that maybe it won't be noticeable at the right. end in terms of like yield per acre right. or milk milk yield per right. acre. Okay, so with that said, and and just fast forwarding a little bit to the data, uh, in order to analyze this, as I was reading through this, they got all the way down to, was it a Dremel, like an engraving yeah, tool? Yeah, they were yeah. engraving out this, uh, so they were measuring it, each individual kernel to determine this uh, measurement for you to make sure you have the best variety of corn. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about what your corn breeding team was interested interested in studying and so you you went through and you bred each individual plant by hand can you talk about that process and what plot work looks like to ensure that the corn that went into these mini silos were truly exactly what you thought they were yes of course there is this well-known feature and it's reported in several papers and articles that in general soft endosperm kernel, which some people call them flowery, chalky, mm -hmm. white, are highly digestible than hard, vitreous, flint endosperm type. So we come with a very simple idea. Can we use a simple genetic feature of self-fertilization or cross-fertilization to just change the genetics and the properties of the kernel and then chop it and compare? So the way it works is you have a corn plant and corn is an open pollinated plant where you have the female a part of the of the plant, which is the ear with the silks, and the male, which are tassels. If you self-pollinate it, that plant, once it's reaching sexual maturity, you will get one genotype in the kernel. But if you bring mm -hmm. foreign pollen, you do what's called a cross-pollination, you get a different kernel genotype. But the maternal part, in terms of the plant, the vegetative tissue, it's the same. So we thought, oh, right. can we grow? the same varieties make different pollination treatments so we change we trigger kernel change so that we do a silage mixture and we compare same plants with different kernel features to see exactly how much just tweaking the kernel will impact the downstream digestibility and problem in profile 
Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then you're sure that the, the whole plant that's being fermented over time, that would be uniform, correct? Correct. So it's basically changing the, the, the hardness of the kernel, keeping the maternal, the veget the, the stover part constant. The trait constant. And so that way you can really shake out the differences between what's happening inside this kernel. Correct. And and so it's uh I can only imagine you've got these tiny plots of of corn and you're running around shaking pollen onto them and and encapsulating them with bags to make sure that they don't cross-pollinate. And all of that was probably challenging. But then then you ran the the chopper down through there and created silage just like every dairy farmer would do but you put them in small bags and um, those small bags were vacuum sealed to create the idea of a silo and what i'm most interested about i can't lie i really want to expand upon fermentation over time and you looked at all these different bags were harvested on the same day but then you had you had a bag of silage that was not fermented at all or analyzed from day zero and then you had 30 days so one month then two months four months and even eight months and so really kind of looking at what happens to the biology of your silage over time and how fermentation can really help unlock the nutrients for your herd. So let's just dive right in there and talk a little bit about what were some of the findings that you had with just the time effect, over time, how did that silage change? Yes, so you're right. We use mini silage techniques, mini mini silos. That that is a method that was recommended by one of the authors. That it gives you the advantage that you can emulate very uh, conditions that are very similar to like a, a truly big silo, but it allows you to do multiple repetitions without the logistic burden of having I don't know, multiple silos. You had hypothesized that maybe these zines or the the matrix that locks in the starch and the endosperm, maybe they would break down over time through the fermentation profile anyway. Be because they're hydrophobic, they'll they'll likely get broken down in that in the moisture that occurs in in your silage mix. So, what did you see? Did the genetic change improve? the zine concentration or the availability of the starch to the cow? Well, there are, there are different things there. The first thing is the genetic change triggered a big difference in terms of kernel virtuousness and subsequently alpha sane concentration, but it changed in a different level depending on the mutation. In all of them, you can see some level of change in the alpha sane balance, but that is not translated in starch digestibility, which is what we most care and farmers care, right? You want a, a more a higher efficiency of energy extraction. So that's interesting. So one of the findings that we found is for this difference to be significant at the end level, at the starch digestibility level, you have to have very significant difference in terms of uh, viciousness. So when if you measure just the kernels, right, you will find difference. But when you put it in the silage mix, in order to be significantly different, you need to have severe or extreme difference. So only one of our mutations, the most severe one, is called opaque 2 which changed from 70% virtuousness to 30-something, that was consistently different in all ensiling time points. The other thing we want to know, is there were some reports that those alpha saints, those prolamines, are broken down the more time you leave them in the silo because of natural protease activity that is going 
within the silage mixture. And yes, we found that in all the genotypes, in all the varieties, there is almost like a linear decrease of alpha zane concentration, which is telling you, or, or, or the farmer, the more you store your kernels in a silo condition, those alpha zanes will degrade. Mm -hmm. You know, your figure on figure two is just very clear. Over time, you can see every single one of these lines are starting to decrease or your zanes that are locking in your starch are starting to decrease. And so it's it's a visual indicator of what, what you see all the time, guys. You know, if you start feeding that silage too soon and your animal performance is negatively impacted and then over time that starts to improve so you might have a whole group of listeners here that are actually listening from the cab of their tractor while they're harvesting silage and they're thinking to themselves man i've got this green chop boy i would really like to not be buying forage right now we a lot of the midwest has gone through some drought type conditions and forage inventories in general are low can you give them any encouragement to let that silage sit just a little while right i mean if you want to get the most energy out of your uh, silage in terms of the performance or the nutritive value of the kernel it's well reported that the longer you leave it in a storage length, you'll get a better extraction efficiency of starch from your kernels. Those prolamines that we took at the beginning will be degraded. Mm -hmm. So you're leaving those starch granules, those starch little sacs, more available for the ruby microbia to go there and knock them down and, and, and keep going with the energy change. And you might get a little bit of change, you know, two months in, but boy, you really start to see it slide down at 120 days. The figure really does a great job showing that. If any of you guys want to click on that link at the bottom of the comments, you can visually see the change that's occurring. And, and guys, think about this as, as maybe um, a bit of a savings account right? It's accruing interest almost as it's sitting there in the pile. If you could really hold off, then that will unlock those nutrients. So in, in a way, you could call it almost free nutrients, so to speak, because otherwise it would be processing through the cow and just being deposited in her manure and not being unlocked, available to be turned into milk. And And really that's that's what we're all about, is just trying to make high-quality milk fuel our cows so that they're as efficient as possible. So maybe maybe this is a little bit off course because you did not research this in this particular paper, but it's not every day that I have a corn breeder on my podcast. And, and so I really, so I'm thinking about this particular topic and it's, it's just got my wheels turning. I want to bounce it off of you. You know, there's many places throughout the Midwest this growing season that in addition to the drought they also have record-breaking temperatures and so i was wondering while i know this wasn't specifically studied in the project what what could be some long-term implications of this excessive heat temp during the pollination phase yes i mean this is a such a big theme and very critical at the lab that i work we have a a good amount of acres of uh, yield trials. And as you mentioned, the, the beginning of the season and going beyond the beginning, more to the, the flower phase, it was extremely dry. This is the first year that I saw severe flowering anomalies in some lines, some of them with very poor fertilization, some of them with acting very odd in terms of the timing. So, you know, when farmers plant the, the corn hybrids, 
they need to have a, a good match between the pollen and the silk. So when you get to those mm. flowering stage with very poor conditions, either low moisture in the ground or extreme temperature or even worse to both, the plants start acting very weird in terms of its physiology and, and its flowering. And everybody agrees that the most critical step in production of corn is the flowering time. If you mess the environment there, there are high chances of getting very low or poor yields. If we keep seeing these trends of very unstable in the long-term weather, I think this is going to be the turning point direction where should breeder put the more effort on it. Because, mm -hmm. right, kernel digestibility, it's very important because you want to push those margins, you want to be efficient. But this is a, a little detail compared to like strong perturbations to the, right. to the sexual cycle of the plant. So I think if these things continue to go on, we will need to start breeding for much more resilient crops, crops that are, are able to withstand larger temperatures that are more efficient in uh, water use resources, which is a, a big thing. You bet. Absolutely huge. And and I think that making sure that you have some sort of kernel, I mean, we've, we've fed drought stress corn, golly, for the last couple of years even, and it can work, but man, it's an expensive way to make milk. So I do want to talk a little bit about how this can impact dairy farmers that are looking to analyze their silage to feed it to their herds. You were able to identify that total zines, alpha zines, ammonia, and soluble crude protein were significantly correlated to in vitro starch digestibility. When, when they go to submit their corn silage sample to the lab, is there anything different or new that they should be asking for to better understand the variety of corn that they've grown? For sure. Well, I think that such a strong relationship between total zanes, which is something easy and straightforward to measure, with the, the relationship of that particular protein type with in vitro starch digestibility, it's something that should open a new door of exploration. Because measure digestibility, uh, it's not cheap. There are different methods you need to do. So depending if you use a uh, cow rumen fluid, or if you do it with the gas pressure technique, it's more complicated, it's more laborious, versus if you can have a proxy of something like total sense that you can measure with a spectrophotometer or with NIR, that would be great. The other important things to notice here, Regan, is that there's always been this, not marketing, but say that vitreousness correlate very tight with in vitro starch digestibility. Mm -hmm. I'll push it one level beyond, and I'll say that that correlation holds better with total zanes. Hmm. The connection between zanes and vitreousness is not yet fully clarified. I think it's more complex than what, hmm. what we believe. So if, if we have something, a proxy that holds tight, like a zanes, I think there is a room for improvement there on predictors of starchy digestibility. Cool. So pardon my ignorance, but is that... Is that a line item on submittals for most labs, most NIR packages? I wouldn't say most. I am not an expert in, in the labs, but for sure the, the big ones that I've had relations with, they do it, yes. Okay, very good. Um, you wouldn't want to say which labs those are, would you? No, it's, it, it's fine. We use University of Wisconsin soil and forage lab analysis for this. Again, this whole world of efficiency of feed extraction, there are many, many are angles that you can see this. For example, mm -hmm. vitreousness versus not vitreous might hold under certain chopping length of the kernel. 
versus total scenes could be like a more fair descriptor of the potential of your kernel. Absolutely. One of my favorite questions, and and I feel like we kind of have been talking about this the whole time, but is there anything that you think boots on the ground dairymen should take home from from this project specifically? Like what what's a good summary of what they ought to know? Well, I think a couple of things. Uh, first of all, starch digestibility. It's a, I would say, more complex than what we believe it is. So try to understand your particular system. And when I say your particular system is try to aim for a particular storage length because you will have different efficiencies of energy extraction depending on how long you store your silage. Then the different genotype you use play a role. But if the difference in the kernel texture is not as dramatic as, as you think, that might be not translated at the end of the chain in terms of starch digestibility. What we found in this article is that, yes, you will see those differences in, in alpha sains and digestibility, but in order for them to be significant in a silage mixture, mm -hmm. those need to be significantly huge, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, and, and further emphasizes the importance of leaving it in the silo, because Ultimately, if you're able to feed last year's corn silage for an additional, say, six months, then that gives you some time to get all of these zanes broken down, and then it's a moot point, right? Correct. But I think it's those situations when we're crunched on forage inventory, and perhaps today in September, it's not the ideal time to be talking about quantifying your forage inventory, but, but maybe it is. Maybe a month from now, uh, you go out and you look at your total tonnage harvested and think about how you're going to utilize that total tonnage over time, uh, calculate in some shrink so that you find yourself with enough silage on hand to carry forward. I know there's a lot of producers out there that maybe have separate silos so that can be filling one silo while you're feeding out the other for the next six months, or maybe you are using an ag bag if you're a smaller herd. Just different strategies and maybe work with your local extension agent to determine the best way to strategize through that increased storage time so that you can maximize the nutritional value of your corn silage. Right. And if I if I can add a couple of things, yeah. I think the, the community, the silage community, we're all agreeing the importance of zanes in the process of extraction of energy extraction. There is research that is going on because zanes are proteins mm -hmm. of the addition of protease, which are basically enzymes that break down protein. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a new thing to explore. There are some research, but I think it should be more in terms of like what particular protease lines or microbes, which concentrations. Because if you can tweak that, mm. that same degradation curve, maybe accelerate it mm -hmm. just by inoculating protease, that's a, that's a big, that's a big win because be. we're understanding the system from the core. So on the protease, are you putting that in then, of course, at, at, at chopping? Then is like an inoculant? Yes, uh, we don't do that. We, that's not our area of, of interest, but I've read and I have some collaborators that are doing that. Mm -hmm. And it's just a new idea, tool to explore. Yeah. But the combinatorics of parameters that you can tweak grows kind of exponentially because those protease organisms will work very different according to the size of the particle, right? Because there is a like a surface attachment surface ratio. Mm -hmm. So, of course, the smaller is your, is your theoretical cut of length. 
it will be more effective the act of those proteins, right? Sure. And then you have that as a factor, what micro, what concentration, and also what genotype you use. Wow, that's really cool. Well, this has been super informative and I, I thank you so much for your time. And listeners, I applaud you for taking time out of your day today to learn about corn silage and specifically the kernel and the starch availability in your corn silage and, and how that can impact your overall energy available to your cows for milk production throughout the entire feeding period. So I've really enjoyed our conversation. This has been the September edition of Dairy Science Digest, a monthly podcast project designed to bring the Journal of Dairy Science straight to your ears. We highlight peer-reviewed research articles that are actively impressed. It's sound science that you can base your management decisions around provided by your University of Missouri Dairy Team. So please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to get future editions straight to your cell phone. This is Reagan Bluel with the Dairy Science Digest, and I hope you have a great day.